Good morning. I want to thank all those that participated today. Thank you, Bertha. Thank you, Julia. Also, a special shout out to Tasha and what they did during offertory. We have a cradle roll in kindergarten. Praise the Lord. And thank you, Tasha. I know what that takes to put that together. If you've ever gone back there and seen that room and what she's done with it, it's awesome. Okay? And it's the songs. How many remember those songs from your cradle roll? I mean, I remember them. I sang them too, so I'm singing along with them as I head towards my second childhood. It's kind of nice. So, As we start our physical year, which started actually last month, but some of the things the pastor has been talking with us and going over, and so as we start this physical year here in Tallahassee, I've been thinking about what the pastor has been saying. He's been talking with the elders this past year about his ideas and what he wants done here at church. And so as I have been putting this together, I remembered an old story, and I want to retell that this morning. It's an interesting old story. I think it applies to what I've titled the sermon, Why Doesn't the Sign Work? Because we should be able to put that sign up there and they should just kind of drive in automatically, right? Um, so the old story that I have is an old story I remember my dad doing a sermon on. It comes from the 1960s. It's by Joe Bailey. It's a book that's about 85 pages long that has several parables and allegories. But I think it espouses what we want to do as a church here today and how we want to go forward. And so you'll have to tell me what you think of this story. The blimp idea got started when a little cluster of friends met for a barbecue in a backyard. It was George and Ethel's backyard, and of course, I'm sure it was a vegan barbecue, so make sure that's correct. But they were talking with each other, and they were wondering how to reach their neighbors, and they were watching over the fence, as we all like to do, and the neighbors over the fence were, well, we could tell they weren't saved because they were playing cards, they were drinking, and they were smoking. So it was pointed out that, well, they did say they attended church, but it was like once a year, maybe twice a year. And it was a, certainly a liberal church. So, And about that time, a, an airplane went over that was landing at the airport nearby. And Herm looked up at the airplane and remarked, he said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something like a great big banner attached to the back of that airplane? I mean, the banner could say something like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because I noticed that the neighbors next door, when that airplane went over, they looked up and saw that. And we could witness to them, and we could spread salvation this way. Well, the talk continued, and one thing led to another, and it was birthed an idea that they should buy a blimp. It could trail scriptures behind the blimp. And soon they thought about this, and Herm was pushing through, and they said, Let's form a 
C, nonprofit. And they got themselves chartered and organized and a board and officers. And of course, they made Herm the executive of this new corporation called International Gospel Blimps Incorporated. Everyone admired Herm also because he quit his regular job to work on this full time. This project would naturally require a great deal of money, maintenance for a hangar and the blimp, salaries for the pilots, for the executive, and fundraising quickly took over and consumed all the time for the organizers. Within weeks, the board members were devoting all their spare time. They ran up suggestions like, you know what we could do? We could create little tracks. We could tie them with cellophane, and we could drop them. These are firebombs from heaven. And we even put speakers on it. We could do sermons from the air. Soon they were missing their Little League baseball games. They turned down invitations from friends to go out for pizza or dinner. They spent all their evenings working the plans of this organization, totally dedicating their lives to this new mission service. Soon the loudspeaker was added to the blimp and it began to preach short messages across the city while dropping these firebombs and dragging the scripture du jour through the sky. When the sermons began invading the homes, the citizens kind of rose up in protest. And soon the police chief came around and threatened to arrest them for disturbing the peace because everybody was just, well, the speakers kind of crackled. You could hardly hear what they were saying. but So they agreed they wouldn't run the speakers anymore. We'll just run the blimp. Meanwhile, Herm, the executive, began devoting less and less time to the actual day-to-day running of the gospel ministry. He took the honorary title of commander had it put on all his business cards, commander of the blimp. He went far and wide teaching others how they could do this, seeking out business people who would give large donations because it took a lot of money to run this. And soon he was gone on business trips all the time. Eventually, Herm's wife even filed for divorce because he was never home, particularly when she found out why he was never home and always touring. But the board decided Herm was too important. They can't let him go. We can't dismiss him. And it was only her word against his. So It's interesting as they continued to go through this, but soon after a few months that became years, Ethel and George, the original people that had the barbecue, dropped out. And they kind of dropped out because they realized that their neighbor had knocked on their door a few times and they hadn't been there to even answer the door. And the uh, business of running the blimp and everything that went with it was taking up too much of their time. And they felt they were getting minuscule results. Well, Herm was kept going. I mean, he played golf with high-powered executives, quite a bit of golf. And they talked to him about, you know what we can do? We can sell commercial messages in between the gospel messages on the blimp so that it would show I am the way, and then behind that, I'm the American way, buy it, Safeway. 
this would finance the blimp. So it would be self-financing and continue to spread the firebombs and the messages. On the third anniversary of the actual barbecue that started all of this, George and Ethel invited their friends over to have another barbecue and to see how things were going at IGBI. In their backyard, they actually introduced the neighbors who had been the impetus for this gospel blimp in the first place. They said, they're meeting with us today because they have become Christians and come to know Christ. Well, immediately the board members hounded them with questions. What was it that brought you? Which firebomb was it that you read? And, and which one of the scriptures we trailed brought you back to this? Was it one of Herm's sermons from the original when we had the speakers? And come to find out, no. In fact, it wasn't any of that. In fact, the neighbors hated the infernal blimp. It drove them batty. But let's explain a little bit, George and Ethel said, about exactly what happened here. When they came out of the blimp ministry, they had time to go and meet their neighbors. They went next door to them and found out that the next door neighbor's wife was due to have major surgery real soon. So Ethel decided that she would go down and visit this lady while she was in the hospital recovering. And she sat with them and told her about Jesus and began to read the Bible to her. Meanwhile, at home, because the husband wasn't that good a cook, they invited him over because his wife was gone. They invited him over for meals. After meals, they had devotionals. And the husband said, I've never met anybody with such a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for inviting me over. And the husband told the backyard group, you know, there's something else. And you guys probably have noticed that when your wife's away for two, happen two weeks, what happens to the house? It's a little bit dirty. So Ethel had come over before her, his wife came back from the hospital and cleaned the house top to bottom. And he said, it's never been cleaner. And the wife added, yes, for a month after I got home, Ethel wouldn't let me do any of the washing or ironing. She came over, got our clothes, washed them, and brought them back. In the silence that followed this testimony, one of the board members got brave and ventured, well, now that you're part of this, you want to join our blimp ministry, don't you? We need more people. Sorry, said the new believer. George and I are going bowling with the guy across the street next week. Joe Bailey gives his interpretation of this modern-day parable in the final chapter of this little book. The little city where the gospel blimp is conceived is the world. Our latter 20th or 21st century world in which Christians work, play, raise children, buy automobiles, and face the devil every day. Our next-door neighbors may be down the road, or across the town. They may drink beer, play cards, but just as likely they may attend the symphony or lead the local civic club. Some of them may sit next to us on Sabbath morning. The blimp 
Bailey says. Why the wonderful gospel blimp is every impersonal, external means by which we try to fulfill our responsibility to witness to our neighbors. Gospel programs over the radio, messages on billboards, church signs or tracks, these are some of our blimps. Let's be careful here, too. I'm not saying those are wrong. What I'm saying is we use them as poor substitutes for personal communication, the sort of witnessing we glimpse afar in the New Testament. Technical organizational means have one enormous lack, and that's human heart. They may multiply a voice 10,000 times, but it's only a voice. Adding anything to the gospel of Christ must weaken it. Jesus Christ refused to fall into this trap. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. To tie Jesus to the very best that human system is, is to tie a star light distance away to a dead horse here on earth. Neither the star nor Christ will thus be bound. So the question before us today is why do we fall into this mistake? Too many times we leave evangelism for the professionals. The pastor and the evangelist, they're the ones that are paid to do this. Let's leave it to them. We go halfway across the world on short-term mission trips, neglecting to care for our community or our own neighbors who are right next door to us. And we solely rely on events at church for evangelism instead of building relationships with non-believers, sharing the gospel with them, and praying for spiritual proof. Spiritual proof, fruit. Now, I don't want anybody to take this wrong. These are wonderful things. And we have them for a purpose. But let's not forget why we are here. I'm one of these people. I preach to myself when I say this too, so don't take this personally. I think most people would just as soon ride on the edge of the wing outside of the plane all the way from Tallahassee to Seattle than to go up to a stranger and witness. To ask someone if they'll go to heaven when they die or to see if they're saved, to give someone you've never met a tract of the four spiritual laws, or about the prophecies and revelation. Sometimes I'd rather run the other way as fast as I can, like Jonah. And yet bearing a witness is part of the package we've been talking about in this sermon, as we look for a newborn relationship with Jesus. That kind of friendship requires three things, Bible study, prayer, and witnessing. Actually opening your mouth, telling others what Jesus means to you. Maybe you've spent your whole life looking for an out. Is it possible we can just read our Bibles and pray and hope that God will satisfy, it will be satisfied with two out of three? But we find so many times that God commands us to witness. We read in Matthew 24, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached 
to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel will be preached, the Bible says. Someone in God's army is going to do it. Well, I am often tempted to say, yes, someone will do it. And here's 50 bucks. I'm going to put it in the plate. I'm going to say it's for evangelism. Pastor, you do it. I'll sit here in the pew. I will study my Bible. And I will pray. And I will pray for you too, Pastor. But you know that excuse is not going to work. Let me give you two biblical reasons why it will not. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus has just healed a man who is possessed by demons. And this man, duly freed from his chains of torment, is so grateful. And we see him with this person called Jesus there in Galilee. That he's welled up with the emotion of the moment. And he would like to stay with this Jesus and these 12 semi-pro preachers called his disciples. I want to stay with them. I will support them. Look, I can help. But Jesus said to him, go home to your family. Tell them how much Jesus means to you and that he has had mercy on you. It's always interesting to note in this passage that this man was not given 24 hours of how to witness to others. We understand why this new believer would want to stay with the Savior. First of all, out of sheer gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. I want to stay with you forever. Look what you've done for me. Jesus is such a wonderful preacher. I could sit here and listen to him forever. But notice that Jesus does not let that happen. He sends the man home. No, you go and tell your friends and your family. Tell them what I have done for you. Now, it's true that oftentimes a witness team, team has a presenter, has people who support by carrying the suitcases, carrying the projector, the microphones, setting up the PowerPoint. We need these people to be part of the organized skills within our church. And many of us have participated in these types of services. But we see here in some way and fashion, at some point, every single person is actually called upon to express their confidence in Jesus. Do you want to know some good news? First of all, Jesus makes it clear that we are witnesses. We are simply to tell others about what Christ has done for us. We don't need long proof texts or lengthy Bible studies, although that will come with the friendship that we create. But witnessing is basically telling others what Christ has done for you. Nothing will compel someone else's interest more than you simply sharing how much your life has changed for the better as you accepted him as your redeemer. In his book, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, Pastor Jerry Cook tells about a man who did just this with his neighbor. He was over the fence telling him how happy he was that Jesus was in his life, how Jesus had changed it through prayer and study. Suddenly, the man was interested. The neighbor wanted to know more about becoming a Christian. 
And the man panicked. The first thing he did was dial the pastor. Pastor, please come over to my house. Someone is interested. Share the six steps or the four spiritual laws or the 28 fundamental beliefs. Whatever, you've got to come over as quick as you can. And you know, old habits die hard. Pastor Cook describes he was in his car and halfway there when he suddenly realized, wait a minute, I'm not going to do this. This is something church members should be doing. So he turned around, went back home, called the man and said, I'm not coming. Well, you know what the man said. Pastor, you must come. You must do your job. The pastor said to him, Jesus wants you to do this. Just keep telling your friend how it is for you. Show him how to pray, how to study God's word, how important it is to be part of a faith community. He said, look, brother, to bring this friend to Jesus, just to tell this story, is the most wonderful thrill in the world. I would be acting the part of the thief if I robbed you of this incredible joy. The next weekend at church, he saw both of these men sitting there. He could see on the member's face the glow of that glorious moment of bringing someone else to church. Now let's notice something else. Jesus sent this man home to witness to family and friends, to the people he already knew. So many times we think we've got to reach the whole city when what we need to do is go home to our family and our friends. The pastor has talked about this. To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. Jerusalem is our church, our friends. Judea, our own families. Going there first will bring in so much more. In his book, Becoming a Courageous Christian, Pastor Bill Hybels has a chapter entitled, First, You've Got a Barbecue. The very thing we say to someone in our neighborhood shouldn't be, come and sit with me next week at church. No, we need to start with personal relationships. Birthday parties, garage sales, sharing cookies at Christmas. After someone has sat with you at a baseball game a few times or enjoyed pie in your house, then is the time to bring up more important things. There's one more significant thing that's part of this story. When Jesus tells this person, go home and tell people what you've done for them or what I have done for you, there's a significant part here. And that is, you can't witness until you have something witness about. Morris Venden shares two examples of this, and I love these examples. The first one is, let's imagine that we're back at the original O.G. Simpson trial, and you're on the witness stand as one of the witnesses, and you're presented with a question. Where were you on the night in question? I was home in bed. Did you see anything? Did you notice a white bronco? Bloodstains? Did you know Cato Caitlin? No, I didn't see anything. I was asleep the whole time. Okay, what did you hear? I didn't hear anything. Nope, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything, don't know anything. Immediately, 
the witness will be excused. You can't be a witness unless you've experienced something. Put it another way. You can't come back from a place you've never been. If you've never been to the North Pole, you can't come back from there. I know a lot of us have walked through terminal buildings at airports and other places, waiting to witness, looking for a victim. And we really don't have anything to say until we have a relationship with Jesus. What is there to tell? So I present scenario number two at the OJ trial. Marsha Clark steps forward again to ask the witness. Remember, you're still under oath. Where were you the night in question? Silence. Nothing is said. Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? Silence. So Miss Clark turns to the presiding judge and instructs the judge, please ask the witness to answer the questions. But before the gavel comes down, you quickly speak up. Your Honor, actually, I'd like to be a silent witness. I want to be a testimony just by my lifestyle and my honesty. If you don't mind, I'd rather not say anything. I'm just hoping my presence here will be a good witness. Would that work? I don't think so. Probably the judge may put you in the same prison. But huge numbers of Christians take this same approach. Let's let Pastor Brown do the preaching at church. Or better yet, let's get the media stars as it is written. Faith for Today, 3ABN, Hope Channel. We can share these on the radio, on the TV. They can come here. They can do it. They are better than I. I will be the silent witness. I will support these ministries. I will keep my lawn mowed. I will go to church on Sabbath. But I'm too shy to speak up. And I confess myself. I see myself in this same thing because there's that old poem I'm sure many of you heard it I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day I'd rather walk one walk with me than merely tell me the way and the best of all preachers are the men who live their creed for to see good put into action is what everybody needs many of us has heard that before correct it's by Edgar A. Guest and there's some decent truth, of course, in here. It's nice to see a good sermon framed by a godly life of a person who keeps a good yard, is nice to the neighborhood kids, and is a good friend to everyone. But the stark facts are these. There comes a time when you need to leave our nicely mowed lawn and go over to the neighbor's house and say, Come, be with us. See what Jesus means to us. Someone once asked, where would we be today if the Apostle Paul had been content to be a silent witness and so neat straight stitches and all those tents he made? Well-made tents are nice, but thank God that Paul opened his mouth to tell the world how much Jesus meant to him. What would have happened if Protestant Reformation, to the Protestant Reformation, if Martin Luther had stayed holed up in his convent and only blessed the world by the way he swept the kitchen, dried the dishes, or did breakfast for the monks. Maybe you've discovered that if you read your Bible and pray, 
and read your Bible and pray and read your Bible and pray and never once give out the great things that you learn in there, your Christian experience will become stagnant and will die. It works that way with lakes. If water flows in but never flows out, it becomes stagnant, overgrown, the fish die, soon all the water goes sour. Even as a brand new baby or a new Christian, we can share this good news but we, because we can say what God has done for us. C.S. Lewis once commented that this is compound interest. It works both ways. The friendship feeds the witnessing and the witnessing feeds the relationship. It's a full circle of growth. I invite you today to think about the success God would give each one of us if we went out with the intentionality of two things. Nurturing our current friendships and maybe make some new ones. How many more people in our neighborhood could we get to know if we devoted some time and spiritual energy to meeting them personally? How much more could we do to create strands of friendship where we work, exercise, shop, and play? Jesus said to the man when he was released from his prison of demon harassment, Go home to your family and tell them all the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy to you.